0: Welcome to this special episode of Nuclecast, The Best Of, where we pull some of our most popular and timely episodes from the archives to bring to you once more. Be sure to like and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, where we share new episodes as well as video clips from our shows. Enjoy the show and be sure to check out all of our episodes at anwadeter.org. Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufford, co-founder and vice president
1: for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The ANWA Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization.
0: Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest. Dr. Thomas Mason is the president and CEO of Triad National Security, and he serves as the director of Los Alamos National Laboratory, and in a prior job, he was the director of of that little lab in uh, a part of Tennessee, you may have heard of Oak Ridge, and so he's he spent 20 years there, and so he's got a long background in the national labs. And today we're going to talk about a great topic. Of course, many of you may have already seen the new movie Oppenheimer, and of course, who better to talk about? Oppenheimer than the director of Los Alamos. I couldn't have thought of a better person and as an avid film buff and amateur critic, Tom thought that he would uh, like to come on Nuclecast and, and share his thoughts. So with that, Tom, welcome to Nuclecast.
1: Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So with Oppenheimer coming out and you know, it's based on the book American Prometheus and as you and I were talking before the show, it does a pretty faithful job of following the book. as As you look at it as a lab director, what is it that stands out about the film, and and what makes the film sort of this this glorious movie that it, that many folks are saying that it is?
1: Well, it's a you know it's a huge topic. Uh, Oppenheimer had a really rich, complicated, interesting life. Um, Many people know the story of the Manhattan Project, which is a big part of the movie, uh, but that was two and a half years out of a life that extended, you know, in both directions in interesting ways. And actually the film covers a big part of that, you know, starting with his his early studies as a student uh, through the the loyalty security hearing. And um, it's... uh, you know, it's not—it's not—it's not a happy story. This is by no means a comedy or a feel-good movie, but it's—it's a, it's a really gripping, dramatic uh, story, and it, it's certainly one that resonates. I think for uh, Los Alamos uh, and really all the national labs, because the whole idea of a national lab really was an outgrowth of the Manhattan Project. Such things really didn't exist before the Second World War. And since it was the Manhattan Project that gave birth to these institutions, in a way, Oppenheimer, as the director of the effort at Los Alamos, it was called Project Y during the war, is kind of the prototype for, for the role of lab director. So I think we all kind of see him as, as maybe a little bit of a role model for, for our responsibilities in terms of you know, overseeing these institutions.
0: Yeah, it's a good it's a good point. And and as you look at it, and then you you know if you were to talk to average Americans who had seen the film, what what would you want them to get out of the movie, and what would be sort of if if you could, you know, you're in front of an audience of you know the Kiwanis Club or you know you pick a civic organization, and you're talking to them and using the movie as a you know sort of as a useful tool to talk about the lab and and what it does what what would you tell them
1: well i think it's it's a it's a really striking example of you know at a time of crisis for the country um where all possible resources were being brought to bear uh in defense of, you know, democracy and Western civilization, basically, Um, that that included mobilizing the scientific and technical resources of the nation and um, really working in a very focused way to take what had only very recently been very, very fundamental science breakthroughs. I mean, the neutron was only discovered in 1932. So 10 years prior to the first chain reaction at the Chicago pile, Under the leadership of Enrico Fermi, the neutron was a brand new thing that had never been seen before. So to be able to mobilize the science and engineering resources to take that kind of very fundamental breakthrough science that no one initially really understood the potential implications for technology and for warfare and turn it into something that had, you know, a world changing decisive effect in terms of ending the war um, is a, a remarkable accomplishment. Um, and then, of course, it created all these issues in terms of okay, now we've done this. How are we going to manage it? How are we going to handle it uh you know we've we've put this tremendous uh power on the table as something that can be used you know for good in the form of nuclear energy and carbon free power and and uh you know can also has has tremendous destructive power so on the one hand, you see the story of this mobilization of effort, very focused effort, significant public investment in a time of need. And then you see kind of in the sort of second phase of the story really coming to grips with how to deal with this. Now we've done it, uh, we've, we've uh, solved the scientific challenges, the engineering challenges, and we've released this capability that as a society, we haven't yet totally figured out how to deal with, and that of course was a lot of the debate that you see play out in the movie uh, you know, after 1945, as there were discussions about you know arms control and international control uh, and, and supervision of atomic energy and development of new and more powerful weapons. And of course, that's an important part of the story as well, of equal importance to the story of the creation of the technology.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good point you make and and I wonder I wonder how is is Americans watch this movie and really think of, about it and think about what it means, you know, it's sort of like I wonder if it's for you and we'll you know, we'll know this in the next few years. In many respects like when when Top Gun came out, you had tons of young you know men and women who wanted to go and become fighter pilots and so you saw applications to the air force academy and the naval academy go way up because they you know they spurred people to want to be what they saw on the big screen I, i'm i'll be curious to know if oppenheimer sort of spurs folks to want to be you know nuclear physicists and engineers and chemists and the kinds of things that that you you need and and particularly at a time when you know the lab population is aging and and maybe that's something you could talk a little bit about because i remember back at the um the event we had in um uh, dc and what was it march i think the the summit where we talked a lot about uh, human capital you know, are we getting enough folks? Are they staying? And and I sort of wonder, will Oppenheimer have a similar impact? And and is it even something you need at this point? Do you need Oppenheimer to spur people to want to become physicists and work at labs?
1: Well, we have been hiring a lot in recent years. And, and you know, we've been hiring amazing staff with, with great commitment to the mission. Uh, having said that, I think it's great if it does stimulate awareness and discussion of, you know, the role that deterrence plays and the skills that we need and how we work. I thought the movie did a very good job of depicting the sort of scientific process actually, and how that plays out in a way that, you know, makes it clear why it's can be, you know, something really exciting to pursue. Um, You know, I would say just because of world events over the last few years, There has already been uh, something of a heightened awareness, uh, certainly, uh, particularly with, you know, in February of 22, when when Russia invaded Ukraine, I remember I was on vacation, and and we were traveling around with a group cycling around Tucson, and once they found out I was from Los Alamos, they started asking me, well, what is a low-yield nuclear weapon? And, uh, (laughs) you know, we don't have to worry about Russian nuclear attack, because we have missile defense, right? And... (laughs) Of course, they were sort of disappointed to hear the answer to some of those questions. But it was clear that, you know, people hadn't really thought about these issues very much since the end of the Cold War. You know, I think in the the 70s when I was growing up, in the 80s when I was going to college, these were issues that were kind of front and center of mind because there was, you know, the looming threat of mutually assured destruction. And I think at the end of the Cold War, even though, uh, that threat never really went away. People focused, you know, turned their focus to other things. There were other challenges, uh, terrorism and so forth. And so, in the last few years, as as the threats have changed, and we now see both Russia's uh, actions in, in Ukraine and and you know the shift in the Chinese approach, uh, you know, becoming more belligerent and aggressively pursuing their own deterrent. I think there's already been a trend towards people paying more attention and you know, the movie, I think, somewhat by accident, almost, I don't think this was like a brilliant marketing move that Christopher Nolan had to say, well, I'm going to make this movie right after, you know, we start having nuclear saber rattling in Europe, but it does, it does seem timed for the moment. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's very healthy to have these discussions, have the heightened awareness. And, and I think if, People look at that and say, "You know, this is actually pretty important, and something I want to think about committing my career to. Uh, that'll be tremendously helpful for all of us."
0: So, as as the lab director, you have some major programs ongoing. Could you could you talk to our listeners about the major programs that are ongoing right now at at Lanl and perhaps where they stand?
1: Sure. I mean, the way I've been framing it recently is um, we're kind of entering what I call the fourth age for the lab in the in the Middle Earth sense, you know, the first age of the lab was actually what you saw in the movie Oppenheimer, it was the Manhattan Project, uh, a kind of crash focused effort in a time of crisis to build a bomb to end the war. And that, of course, wound up at the end of the war the cessation of hostilities and probably a little bit after that as people tried to figure out okay what comes next but pretty quickly as we got towards the end of the 40s it was pretty clear that what came next was the cold war and so for about 40 years uh, from the end of the 40s until the end of the 80s we you know built the deterrent Um, we developed the whole concept of deterrence and mutually assured destruction which You know, it was pretty scary, but on the other hand, it did actually hold at bay, you know, kind of global conflict on the scale of what had happened in the Second World War because the consequences were so unthinkable. And so at that time, the lab's mission shifted from the Manhattan Project's single focus to that broader build the deterrent that, that sort of extended, as I said, about 40 years. At the end of the Cold War, you know, we we shifted into another era, post-Cold War era, people might refer to it, where there was hopes that there'd be maybe a declining role for nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence in world affairs. Russia would get, or the former Soviet Union, now Russia, would get sort of more folded into, uh, you know, the kind of democratic capitalistic model that Uh, we have in the West, and China's policy was one of peaceful rise and economic development. And as I said, the focus sort of shifted. And for about 30 years, um, we basically uh, just kept, took care of that Cold War era deterrent. We had a deterrent at the end of the 80s. We didn't see any need to expand it. We had arms control that sort of limited it and and the role of the lab was to just take care of that and it was called stockpile stewardship um, you know we had to monitor we had to make sure that it was safe effective and reliable but we weren't building new systems we didn't want to do anything provocative that would stimulate an arms race and that era the post War, you know was another 30 years and sometime you know between 2011-12 when xi jinping came to power in china uh, 2014, 2015, when Russia invaded Crimea for the first time, or 2022, when they invaded for the second time, we began shifting into this fourth age. And and uh, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. It's probably not exactly the same as the Cold War. It's certainly not uh, like the post-Cold War era in the sense that, um, you know, we now, we're now are facing two you know, near-peer nuclear-armed adversaries and the kind of arms control deterrence model that existed when you had the Soviet Union and the U.S. You know, it's not clear what that looks like when you have three players. Um, And as it turned out, this shift into this new geopolitical realm happened at the same time that that Cold War deterrent that we were taking care of for 30 years was basically aging up. And so right now at Los Alamos, we are very busy um, modernizing our deterrent, Uh, you know, there are things called life extension programs and alterations to, to, um, you know, take the systems that have served us very well, but are starting to have components that need to be replaced and shown, make sure they're fit for purpose. And as we do that, we also have to modernize the infrastructure in which you do that work. So we've been very busy for the last couple of years, building up to support that modernization which actually doesn't even anticipate what things are going to look like uh, you know, in the fourth age in the sense that we are also now having to look at doing new things. We have uh, uh, an effort now called the W93, which will be the first new warhead introduced into the stockpile uh, since since the end of the 80s. Uh, so it's not just... Taking care of the old stuff anymore. We're, we're having to meet new military requirements, new delivery system. In the case of the W ninety three, which will be, uh, you know, part of the new um, submarine based um, ballistic missile uh, that the Navy is is responsible for. So, um, you know, we are we are incredibly busy with with the modernization effort, with trying to look at ways to respond to the evolving threats on the world stage and. You know, the Cold War lasted forty years, the post cold war lasted thirty years. I think I think this new age that we're in is probably gonna be one that's gonna keep us pretty busy for some length of time. I don't see the scenario where things change rapidly. You know, we the new start arms control agreement expires in a couple of years and the Russians have already announced they're suspending their participation. Um so um In fact, I'm not a lawyer or a diplomat, but I'm not even sure suspending your participation in the treaty is a thing. Uh, I mean, basically, we're seeing the end of that uh, kind of uh, formal uh, ground rules uh, for how this works. And we're going to have to chart a new course. And uh, that's unfortunate.
0: Well, we're at that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Los Alamos National Lab's director dr tom mason and when we come back i'd like to switch to one of them the topics that folks like to talk about quite a bit and that is of course pit production and get an update from you and and a sense of where you think things are going and and how we get to the point where we make the pits we need to make so you're listening to nuclecast and we'll be right back This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back, and we're talking to Tom Mason. Tom, before the break, I ask you if you could give us an update on pit production and where are we, and and are, are we going to be making the pits we need on time, and, and what's the status of of that effort?
1: Well, you know, as I as I mentioned before the break, um, we are we are um, in the midst of a modernization effort, which includes modernization of the weapons, but also modernization of the infrastructure. And, um, you know, up to this point, we have been able to use pits, which are the sort of, uh, you know, the first stage of a modern thermonuclear weapon made out of plutonium that were manufactured in the 80s. And they were manufactured uh, to exacting tolerances and, and um, you know, robust designs, so they have they have served us very well, much longer than their original intended lifetime. Original thought was they might be in the stockpile for about uh, 20 years and we're now kind of at 40 years. And as we look into the future to some of the new systems that are being developed, we're gonna have to have new pits. Uh, we can't continue to extend the life of these uh, Cold War era pits. Uh, you know, Like all components, they are subject to aging and although they've lasted Extremely well. There are other things that that wear out much sooner. You know, the timelines to reestablish a manufacturing capability are long, and if we delay uh, too much, we'll have to build a much larger capacity because all the pits were manufactured back in the day at Rocky Flats, where we could, you know, produce thousands of them. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to have that larger capacity. We, need, we want to produce at a lower level that's appropriate for our needs today. And that means we need, need to get on with it now. So as a result, a uh, decision was made in, in 2018 to um, uh, repurpose what has been an R&D facility at Los Alamos called PF4. Uh, for small-scale production activities, and and we're charged with producing 30 pits per year, and then establish a somewhat larger industrial facility at Savannah River that will be capable of of 50 pits per year. Um, And so here at Los Alamos, we've been working through that process to basically refit the PF4 facility that came online in the early 80s, pull out the old glove boxes and put in new ones with new modern equipment for, you know, high precision machining and so forth. And, and, um, uh, at the same time, we are actually doing the development work to start making the pits for the Sentinel system, which is a land-based ICBM for the Air Force, the W87. And so we're operating the facility using, uh, some of the existing equipment, doing the development work. And then at the same time, installing new equipment that will allow us to bring online the full capacity that we need for 30 pits per year. We're anticipating that we will make the first production unit, the first so-called war reserve W87 pit next year. Uh, so we've been working closely with, uh, with Livermore, who's the uh, design lab for that. They, they specify what we have to make and we have to meet their exacting uh, requirements and and that has been a very collaborative effort between Livermore and Los Alamos, and so we're uh, as, as we we're anticipating FPU as it's called in 2024, and that then begins a ramp to get us to 30 pits per year, um, which will be paced by getting the installation done. There's a large investment, something called LAP4. The Los Alamos plutonium pit production. How many P's is the, the <laughs> plutonium pit production project? There's four P's. LAP4. Um, that's a that's a big capital investment to refit the facility. Uh, we've also, you know, in recent years, been doing a lot of other improvements, mainly aimed at, at uh, you know, bringing the facility into a uh, absolutely state-of-the-art condition from the point of view of safety, seismic upgrades, those kinds of things, new fire protection systems. Uh, You know, we've learned a lot over the years in terms of, uh, you know, safety in the environment. So we're incorporating that to make sure that that facility will be uh, fit for purpose for the coming years to support that production effort.
0: I wonder, you know, for me as somebody who spent most of his career on the DOD side, of the nuclear weapons enterprise. And as I look at North Korea, China, Russia, and, you know, it seems pretty clear that, that there may come a period in which we have to grow our arsenal because of the expansion of the Russians, the Chinese and the North Koreans. And I wonder if, if hypothetically we had to grow rapidly, a Russian breakout, you know, the, the Chinese announce a much larger arsenal than we anticipate. The North Koreans are on a trajectory to have significant numbers. Would we have the infrastructure and capability on the design and manufacturing side to rapidly produce, let's say if we had to double the size of the arsenal, or if we had to make a number of, you know, um, tactical nuclear weapons, you know, just, you can think of a, a number of different examples. Would we have the, could we do something akin to what Oppenheimer did 70 years ago or?
1: Well, you know, I think one of the things that Jill Ruby, the NNSA administrator has said is that we need to have a resilient infrastructure that allows us to scale up or down the production according to you know what the national security needs are, um, I would say we don't have that today, uh, but that's what we're working towards. So you know, particularly as we get both the Los Alamos capability and then the Savannah River capability up and running, uh, you know that will give us the. Um, you know, the, the basic infrastructure that we need to scale up if we have to or scale back and reduce the production rate if conditions change. Now, I would say, as you point out right now in the geopolitical situation, you know, it's it's harder to see the scenario where we would be scaling down. I mean, New START is likely not going to be extended. If we were going to extend New START, there would have to be negotiations happening right now with Russia which clearly under the current circumstances can't happen. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, a, a modern, more responsive infrastructure will will allow you to do that. But we do have some work ahead of us to get to that point. Right now, I would not say we're able to turn on a dime and, 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 and wrap things up. But we're making progress to getting to that goal.
0: Now, we're we're at that point in the show where I like to bring out my genie, Um, you know, you see my lamp. I mean, it's a beautiful lamp, uh, and Bob, I'll rub it. And Bob pops out and Bob grants three wishes to guests. He, he loves the show. I don't know why a genie named Bob would love the show as much as he does, but he does. And he grants all guests three wishes. Uh, but only about the topic that we're discussing. So Tom, you get three wishes, but they're all LANL related. So what would those three wishes be?
1: Well, I think my first wish has already been granted. So my first wish, kind of relevant to the discussion we had about the movie, would be that the Department of Energy would take an action to really acknowledge the tremendous wrong that was done to Oppenheimer in the loyalty and security hearing and vacate those proceedings. Uh, And I think anyone who watches the movie will really understand, you know, what a travesty that was. And actually the Department of Energy took that action. The Secretary of Energy in December of, of 2022 formally vacated the loyalty hearing, which I think was long overdue. And so, as I said, I thought, that's my first wish. And the good news there is that it's already happened. And, and that's something I I'm, was really happy to see. Um, let's see. Uh, Oppenheimer had a great quote. He was famous for making martinis. <laughs> and uh, and he had a great toast that he would offer, which is confusion to our enemies. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's probably a good one as well. <laughs> I don't have a martini with me, but if I did, I'd <laughs> offer that toast. Uh, and then in terms of Los Alamos, what our biggest challenge is right now, um, that we may need some divine intervention or, or a helpful genie to help with is you know, we have been very fortunate that we've had strong bipartisan support, uh, you know, that's that's given us the resources we need so far to undertake this big modernization effort. Um, and as a consequence of that, we've been hiring a lot of staff. And, and actually, one of our biggest challenges is the same challenge that was present in 1943, which is housing... <laughs> And transportation for, for all of those staff. I mean, it's sort of amazing to watch, you know, when you read the history of the Manhattan Project, how, you know, there were lots of issues with housing everyone and temporary military housing and the water didn't work and people were unhappy about it. And, you know, it makes it hard to focus on the job at hand. And Fortunately, we're not housing people in barracks and we don't have worms coming out of the water pipes when you turn on your taps. Uh, but it actually is a challenge for us. So we've been uh, fortunate in the support we're receiving and and, um, uh, you know, northern New Mexico is a beautiful place to live, but it's kind of tough to find a house right now or an apartment. So, you know, I think the developers are, are working on it, but, uh, you know, a little genie to help push that along would be most welcome.
0: <laughs> I think that's that's been a problem. You know, I lived in Sandia Heights and there were, you know, the van that went from sort of close to my neighborhood up to the lab every morning you know, housing has been a perennial problem for you that I don't, I don't think anybody's ever solved. So, uh, I wish you well on that one. Uh, let, let me ask you, is you look to, is there any motivation or effort now? And so, and I sort of think back to whenever I first started visiting Lanel and Livermore and the labs, and they were in the process of, of transitioning to Transitioning from weapons labs to national national security labs, because that it was during that nadir of work on on nuclear weapons, and there was you know sort of a well well how do we how do we stay alive and how do we make sure we continue, and so there was a movement into climate change and into lots of other science. Is is there sort of a, a refocus back to being a a weapons lab? Or do, do they coexist as sort of cultures and, and identities? Or is there any change there? Are you shifting folks from, you know, working on climate science to working on weapons? Or how is that all playing out?
1: Well, you know, I, I think we still uh, are very active in, in other areas. And, and climate, clean energy is certainly one. And we do tend to view it through a national security lens. Um, we do work for other, other parts of the you know, defense enterprise, work for the intelligence community and the Department of Defense. Uh, so it's not just nuclear deterrence, but I would say certainly for Los Alamos, the deterrent is our core mission. It's the largest part of the funding and therefore a largest part of the people are focused on that. And it definitely has over the last couple of years acquired a renewed emphasis and focus. I mean, I think there was a period of time when, you know, it was hoped that nuclear deterrence would, you know, be declining in its importance in, in managing world affairs, and that somehow, you know, we'd gotten to a more mature kind of interaction where we didn't need that kind of raw power to restrain the worst impulses. And unfortunately, what we're finding is that though we might have hoped that humanity was evolving to a point where it, it didn't need that, that kind of raw power to moderate, you know, uh, geopolitics, um, that's not the world we're in. So, so there is more focus on the deterrent mission, but it doesn't mean we're not also exploring other elements of national security, uh, on behalf of the U S taxpayer. And in fact, There's oftentimes a very productive interchange in terms of the underlying science. I mean, the same kind of supercomputing that we use to model the climate, you know, that's a core tool for stockpile stewardship and understanding how we can certify a stockpile without resorting to nuclear explosive testing. So, you know, there's a lot of positive back and forth between the various elements of our national security mission.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. Unfortunately, though, we are out of time. So I want to thank you, Dr. Tom Mason, the director of Los Alamos National Labs, for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast. Thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Adam. It's been great to talk with you.
0: And thanks to you, the listeners, and we will see you on the next episode. Well, so afterthoughts. Uh, It was good to talk to Tom. It was good to get us, you know, it's always good to talk to the lab director and particularly at a time when Oppenheimer's just come out and it's sort of a big deal. And I tell you, I really will be interested to see if the labs have a significant growth in the number of people applying for jobs. And, and if it sort of pushes people into these STEM fields, I mean, that'd be a great response to what's happened. So hopefully that's how that'll happen. And, you know, we also talked about pit production, which, you know, that's been a big, big topic. Everybody's sort of interested in it. And it's one where, you know, I guess it's, you know, from what I understood Tom said was it's it's a lot of infrastructure, sort of the big challenge, which, you know, we've all been kind of watching this pretty closely. So it's uh it was a pretty upbeat um interview. I mean, Tom didn't really have a, a woe is me. The sky is falling. So that's always good. You know, we hate to be in that position. And so it was a, it was a good interview and it seems like Landon's sort of doing what it needs to do. And, you know, that's how I read it. So I'll leave it up to you to to make your own judgments. This has been a production of the Anwad Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Krumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Newcast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.